0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 170 of a Life Ruins Podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, joined by my co-host, David Ian Howe. Connor cannot be with us today. He is not dead. He's unzipped. Yep. Yep. But for this week, uh, we are joined (laughs) by uh, Dr. Devin Pettigrew, who is actually realized like one of uh, the leading guests on the show and actually debuted on episode 18.2 as like a as a guest host not even as a guest proper we, he came in, interviewed, uh, I think that's 18.2, all we are is Donnie Dust in the wind uh, had him back yeah. on immediately after episode 19, episode 75 and also episode uh, 112, so we've like, Devin appears in very pivotal points of this podcast, he's been evenly spaced and we have him on now um, to talk about, he just had three articles dropped this year recently, all on weapons ballistics regarding the archaeological record. And he is also an incoming professor to what university, Devin? Sewell
1: Ross. It's in Alpine in West Texas.
0: That's going to be a fun time. I'm really happy for you.
1: Yeah, I'm excited. They have a really strong wildlife management program. And so a lot of what I do is hunting focused. And they have really incredible archaeology down there and they want to open up an experimental archaeology lab, potentially. So it's going to be cool, I think.
2: That sounds awesome and pretty suited for you.
1: Yeah, surprisingly well suited.
2: Yeah. And I I
0: hope you definitely argue for these three papers to be on your tenure packet because your first year is golden if you have these three. Like You're definitely on track. So the titles of these articles, we're going to put these in the episode description. We have um, Reassessing the Terminal Ballistic Performance of Trilobite and Quadroxia, Projectile bait, arrow points, in the Iron Age battlefields. That's by Devin and Dr. William Taylor, has been on the podcast. Terminal ballistics of stone-tipped adalatal darts and arrows. Results from exploratory naturalist experiments. And in that one, you can see a very great picture of me with my belly hanging uh-huh. out looking through a cannon, through a, through a camera, not a cannon. And then the last one is on the non-scalability of target media for evaluating the performance of ancient projectile weapons. And like, and that's with Devin and um, Dr. Douglas. Banforth from CU Boulder. It was really fun for me just to look through your illustrations, Devin, because I recognize a lot of these things. I recognize your old office space where you had a crossbow set up in the lab. <laughs> and, and, and you've been talking about this on the podcast since you've been on. We kind of watched the beginning, like your research back in 2019 as you defended. I mean, now we're, we're looking at like these published peer reviewed results outside of the uh, dissertation defense media so I mean just kind of walk us through so one of the big ones we'll we'll kind of wait for the Iron Age stuff last but when we're talking about prior to your work on weapon ballistics how were archaeologists studying the effects of uh, projectiles on past human populations but also in hunting practices
1: yeah sure so there's a couple different ways and I think On the last episode I was on, we talked about the differences between a controlled style experiment and a naturalistic experiment, the controlled one being where you're like in a lab kind of setting, you're trying to isolate some variable or variables of interest. And so it's very kind of artificial, you know, like it's imagine a bunch of guys standing around in the lab coats. That's not the past. The naturalistic style experiment, where you're, you can imagine being out of doors, you have actually human users launching weapons. It's really hard to to control for variables in that setting. So they both kind of have their strengths and weaknesses. Prior to my work, archaeologists have been doing both for some time, and I would say it seemed like as I looked through the literature that controlled experiments were becoming more and more popular. And so a big issue I ran into is that in a control type experiment, where you're in a lab kind of environment, uh, one of the ways that you control variables of interest is through the targets that you're using. And so uh, people tend to try and use these artificial target media, like ballistics gelatin is probably the best known. And so, I discovered more or less that those target media aren't working that well for, for studying the type of projectile that we're studying. That They're really quite different from bullets. And so you just can't assume that the same target media is going to work the same way. And in fact, you get pretty astoundingly different results shooting uh, an arrow into ballistic shells than you do into actual flesh. So that's really the big The big difference and then uh, the naturalistic types of experiments i carried out are carcasses the big difference there is that uh, the way i employed high-speed cameras allows you to track the projectiles that's coming in track its velocity and then track how it decelerates as it penetrates through the carcass and then you get like a forced feedback so that was pretty pretty interesting
2: so i mean it just kind of seems like I mean, I, I used ballistics gel in my experiment just because it seemed like ballistics gel is the medium you use to test penetration. So I assume archaeologists before right. us just kind of assumed the same. But
1: so, And so did I. Yeah, for my I used it as well for my master's research. Okay. It's, just, yeah. it's supposedly a flesh simulant. I mean.
2: Yeah. No, it makes sense. I think I might have mentioned this last time you were on, but Frizzin, like, chewed me out for using ballistics <laughs> gel and not like an like a practical experiment and i was like presenting to the board i was like well i mean if you want to pay for me to get an elephant to shoot at like i'd love to <laughs> but right. it's like all i could really say but yeah you got a bison yeah. so that's the next best thing
1: yeah it took a lot, a lot of work but we've done three different bison experiments now still hoping for an elephant sometime in the future but Things you're
0: gonna have to play on just right for that. And
1: yeah,
0: you gotta be I'll ready. Be to yeah. Yeah. The 70s were definitely a different time. Uh,
2: yeah, they were. Well, the logistics alone, like you have to, one, be on a list for the, what, the Denver Zoo or the Bronx Zoo, and then San Diego Zoo, and then a day later be able to fly out fully stocked with atlatls ready to be experimented with or else that thing's going to start to rot. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, everything's got to be ready. Exactly. There was a paper I read. It was never published, but it was one of the most useful all elephant carcass experiments I read about because the guy said, I threw together my kit the day before and it was like sharpened wood points and stuff and got pretty lousy results in the take-home messages. Be ready in case an elephant drops dead at your doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> good so advice. now I have like 40 clothes points on standby for just in case. But, uh, but you know, the way Frizen did it, he went to Africa during a coaling operation. And he actually wasn't that well prepared. He kind of threw together his kit a little bit. And then in the field, he had to break it down to get it onto the plane. And then the field, he had to reconstruct it and had he ran into a bunch of issues with that and i think he had seven total close points with him and mm. he made a few shots that convinced him that the weapon would work but his results aren't that well documented so so yeah. um, it, it could be done again but it's important to get the all the ethical issues lined out and you know find a a good source for a, a fresh carcass
0: absolutely you know, what I, what I really like about these three articles is how they are they really kind of come as a package deal. Like they came out close enough together and like you can tell there's different aspects of your dissertation in each one, right? So like one is basically like the most recent one. I don't know if it's the most recent, but it was accepted in May of 2023, the Target Media. So you're basically just like, here's a whole article on and what you've discussed on this podcast why ballistics gel and and these other variables? We need more control over these things. Why they're not necessarily adequate? Then you move into, you know, with your terminal ballistics the stone tipped little darts and arrows. Like your actual experiments, the target velocities, and in introducing like more methodology, and like how do you do this in a in a non like in a very naturalistic experiment? And then the third is you know kind of a case study of doing this on Iron Age battlefields. Like that one kind of threw me for a yeah. loop because. When I think of you, I don't necessarily think of Mongols and, right. <laughs> and like Iron yeah, Age yeah. points, yeah, Scythians. I was like, whoa, okay. And then when I, I saw Doctor Taylor as a co-author, I was like, oh, I, I wonder where the data is, is is coming from here on this one. Yeah, uh, you know. So that I mean, I just think it's just absolutely fantastic. But yeah, so since these, before we kind of like dive well into these, what's what has the reception been to your articles if if any
1: so far I'm not hearing a lot so hopefully people will get out there and read them they're they're all open access the first two the one about target media and the one about carcass naturalistic experiments are in open archaeology and then the third one on iron age arrowpoints is in plus one but so far I'm not seeing direct responses
2: and I mean, could you say that some of the ones you were doing were in response to the, I forget the author of came out last year about the, um, where they were shooting into pottery and Aaron. Those points were in effect, Matt and Aaron, that's right.
1: Yeah. There have been several experiments at Kent State University in Ohio, shooting into pottery clay as a, a flesh simulant. So I did tests on pottery clay as well as ballistics gelatin. I used a a synthetic ballistics gelatin that you can melt and recast. And then I tested a variety of different skin simulants because skin simulants, although in firearms, terminal ballistics, they're they're mainly focused on flesh simulants. Flesh being like muscle tissue mixed with blood vessels and little bits of fat and stuff, but it's mainly muscle. Mm -hmm. Skin simulants are used primarily in studies of knife stabbings, and, which is a whole body literature I got into. I think most of the work is done in England, but they, they're uh, researching this, the efficacy of different knives thrust into to people as a way to have you know another line of evidence if you're evaluating a crime scene or if you're trying to protect your police force with body armor, stab protective body armor, that sort of thing. So they use skin stimulants because skin is the most resistant soft tissue on the body. And so the first thing that the knife has to do, aside from clothing or uh, body armor, is it has to defeat the skin. And once it gets through skin, it can penetrate into uh, less resistive flesh. And then especially the, the internal organs tend to be a lot less resistant. So I tried evaluating darts and arrows in those three... Different categories of media: the two flesh simulants, clay, blister, gelatin, and skin. So, yeah, the testing—all those was in direct response to a number of papers that have come out that have used those types of media.
2: And I guess to follow up with that, I didn't get a chance to read the Iron Age paper. Would you be able to tell just like, like a quick synopsis of, of what that paper was before we dive in?
1: Sure. Yeah, there was a, a prior experiment that shot trial and bilobate, that's simply bl- bilobate is two blades, and but trilobate, trilobate is three blades, bronze arrow points that were collected from Neo-Assyrian sites, so around seven to six hundred BC, mm-hmm. shot them into pottery clay and discovered that the bilobate points, the two-bladed points, penetrated better into clay. And so it was confusing because Around 700 B.C., trilobate points enter into the Near Eastern record. They're coming down from the north because they were invented in the north on the Eurasian steppes by presumably precursors to the, to the to the Scythians or the Scythians themselves. But in any event, they entered into the Near East. And then they spread throughout the ancient world. So it was confusing as to why, you know, what would cause them to spread or become popular. So I essentially re ran that test in clay. And then I did did an additional test in a really thick, heavy, stiff tooling leather because people were wearing body armor Mm -hmm. and body armor, soft body armor, especially made of leather primarily but also fabrics like linen that was very popular in the ancient world. and People continued to wear it into the medieval period. So on a battlefield event, a lot of times the arrows are probably going to be having to defeat body armor before they can enter into the body of the combatant. So, the leather was just an analog for body armor and I got, uh, pretty much the opposite results shooting into leather rather than clay.
2: And those results being that it was tougher to shoot into the leather?
1: Yeah. So uh, stiff leather is, unsurprisingly, it's very resistive. And it's resistive when the broadhead penetrates it, and then it continues to be resistive as the, the arrow passes through it. So we shot into clay, and when the previous experimenter shot it into clay, you're capturing more friction on larger surface areas. So if you attach additional blades, you're just Attaching more surface area to your arrow and mm. it creates more drag and it penetrates less. In the leather, you do get a little bit extra resistance when a broadhead with an additional blade goes through the leather, but it dramatically reduces the drag on the trailing shaft of the arrow. Okay. So you get a significantly better penetration after that additional, you know, defeating of the leather. Okay. So, So the idea is, like, when these points enter into the Near East from the North, we can't just assume that they are representative of an ethnic group. That's been done. Archaeologists were doing that, uh, I I think, mostly earlier on, but apparently this has been a continual problem. Uh, If you're looking at a battlefield doing battlefield archaeology, you can't just assume that one arrow point represents one ethnicity. Right there's all Mm -hmm. sorts of problems with that. First off, how do we even identify an ethnicity in the archaeological record when we have enough trouble doing so today? I mean, you know, which ethnicity do people belong to? It's a a tricky problem. But this just adds another line of evidence that, hey, this is a functional, it's a a technological innovation on the battlefield, and it's not necessarily just that you're going to want three blades, three bladed arrow points from now on because. If you shoot in a different target media, you get different results. So if you're defeating, you're attacking uh, opponents with shields or different kinds of body armor, maybe in different cases, two blades will be better than three. But uh, certainly three blades became really popular and were just completely adopted by the Roman military and a lot of other, a lot of other folks.
2: Hmm. Well, we are going to wrap this segment up. I have plenty of questions regarding that stuff uh, into the next segment, but yeah, Carlton, you got anything? Yeah, we'll be
0: uh, right back with Devin Pettigrew. After these messages, we're going to get into more of the math and have him explain a couple of these very colorful tables. So, we'll be right back.
2: Welcome back to episode one hundred and seventy of a Life Insurance Podcast. I am David Howe. I am here with Carlton Gover and Doctor Devin Pettigrew. Also, Doctor Gover should add that. So, we we want to move on to the other papers, but I do want to ask: when I typed in trial of eight points, the second thing that comes up is your recent paper. So, my question would be, one, I'm assuming these were used by horse archers, um, if they're precursors to the Scythians, and two, do you have any idea why that style took off around the ancient world, or was it designed for shooting other horses or something? Or,
1: Well, yeah, if you add additional blades and, they, and the arrow penetrates well, you get a, a much worse wound, you know, especially like a three-bladed wound. It's mm. really hard to treat that, and it's it's just more deadly, so so if you're shooting at, at horses yes certainly horses on the battlefield you want to use a big broadhead and people talked about that in the medieval period and in europe actually the longbow is extremely could be extremely effective at defeating horses so if you have a cavalry charge at a group of archers i mean that can go very badly for the the cavalry.
0: it was the french learned at ashmore
1: as the french yes exactly So yes, broadheads are effective there, and three blades can make worse wounds. But what's interesting on the northern steppes, and I can't get into this in too much detail, but these bronze points are essentially copying bone points that came about towards the end of the Bronze Age. I think they were in use certainly earlier in the Bronze Age, but by the end of the Bronze Age, on the steps, the bone points, the socketed triangular and trilobate uh, bones, bone points were becoming really popular, and then they were replaced in the early Iron Age by bronze points, which is interesting that they switched over to bronze. But one of the ideas in the, early, in the Iron Age, but one of the ideas here is that to make a three-bladed point from iron is actually very challenging, and it takes a lot of effort. The Romans were using three-bladed iron points, so it shows how, you know, important it was for them to make that style of point from, from iron, but earlier on, they were casting them out of bronze, and so the idea is it's easier to cast them from bronze, and um, if they were working wet- better on the, the battlefield, that helps explain why they they spread, you know, relatively rapidly.
2: Yeah. Okay. No, that's pretty fascinating. I was watching Kingdom of Heaven the other day, and I was thinking, too, just when you were talking, like, the sheer... Not even the dead bodies, but you got to pull all of those dead horses off the battlefield as well. And that probably took much more labor. Or you just left the horses to rot. I don't know. But... but, Oh, yeah! (laughs) Wow. My, My thought assumption before that was that you just tried your best not to shoot horses because it's extra money for you when you get those... The other army's horses, but... It's kind of unavoidable when you're you're in stirrups attached to one
1: yeah i think the tactics just you know changed and evolved it during the time to whatever they needed to do if, if you got to shoot the worst out from under the guy to get the guy then that's what you do yeah if you can capture the worst then that's what you do but it just you know depends on the moment and so
0: yeah and then like speaking to when uh when dr Pettigrew was talking about Triangular points do more damage. Uh, triangular bayonets are like banned by the Geneva Convention because they are like impossible to stitch up. Like lessons we learned from World War One, yeah. you know. So just kind of showing the efficacy of those things. <coughs> but this is another example. Like you can, your work continues to show. Here are all these assumptions that archaeologists in the field have made about projectile weapons, how we measure them, how we can tell things about the past, and you're like systematically through the scientific method. Reconstructing their arguments using the math and being like, this is actually how this works, right? So with the Iron Age stuff, you're looking at like, well, the first guy simulated with this clay. This is why clay is not a good indicator for this, right? And then kind of shifting gears here, I wanted to talk more about the terminal ballistics of stone tip atlatel darts and arrows. So that is the conglomeration of several different Experiments. Uh, That's the word I was yeah, looking Marcus for. carcass experiments. experiments. So the three bison, the goats, is the pig data included in this too? Yes,
1: yeah, the hog, two goats, and two bison. I haven't, the third bison is is brand new.
0: Okay. So if Devin was on Noah's Ark, there wouldn't be any animals left on the planet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no on goats, at least. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nothing with them, right? And I, and I was very fortunate and privileged enough to take part in those experiments, whether just like holding a camera, getting to throw darts myself, and just being a part of that whole fun process across across the West. But I want to kind of pull everyone's attention to this paper uh, on figure seven on page 13 of Pettigrew et al. 2023, the figure uh, momentum uh, and was it velocity as predictors of penetration?
1: Yes, yeah, so we're looking at uh, terminal ballistics of stone tipped out little darts and arrows. Figure seven shows kinetic energy and momentum fitted out against the wound surface area and the total penetration depth.
0: And you have a couple different indicators here. So we're looking at arrows, basket making darts, different types of cane. So I imagine, so what does cane L, cane M, and cane H stand for?
1: Just the weights. So K okay. H is cane heavy, cane M is mm. cane medium, and then cane light.
0: Oh, yeah. okay. And then you have composite.
1: Yeah, those are the composite darts are these very heavy darts. I started making to try and increase the sample and improve the, the projectiles because the the thing about projectiles that people need to remember and that we keep screwing up is that they're extremely variable. Mm. The same projectile technology will be extremely variable, and you're going to have a significant amount of overlap in their ballistics, so a huge amount of overlap in the kinetic energy momentum of an arrow relative to a dart because you happen to have arrows that are, according
0: to the English from the medieval, from the Tudor period, uh, (laughs) half-pound, and they're
1: being shot by bows pulling up to 180 pounds of draw on the (laughs) battlefield. Right, and they're penetrating plate metal armor. So you have that arrow, and then you have an arrow that's shot by a little bitty 20-pound Bushman bow that's just tiny, and the point is to get poison into the bloodstream of the animal. Those are gonna leave entirely different signatures in the archaeological record, those types of bows and arrows. you know, but, but that's one weapon technology. So that's a, a problem for us because because we tend to, to kind of essentialize projectile technology as if you can, you know, boil them down to these kind of essential features.
2: Yeah, and like everybody, even in like within the same culture, I'd imagine somebody has their own specific way of wanting their atlatls. and you know, like when we were shooting the ones on that mountaintop. Like, you gave me that really, really thick, heavy one. I'm assuming was your composite. And, like, that felt really good to throw, but it was too big for the atlatl itself. Right. But I'd imagine even if the points are pretty ubiquitous throughout, like, a region and time period, the atlatl shafts could be way longer or thicker depending on what the person wanted to, so...
1: Yeah, I mean, you can have extreme variability in that atlatl shaft and hold the point more or less constant, or you can do the opposite. You can have a bunch of guys people throwing aval darts that are all very similar, but the points are all hugely different in size. Mm-hmm. Um, all that works. It's all acceptable. right? So the problem here that we're trying to deal with in these naturalistic experiments is we're trying to assess the performance of projectile points against that backdrop of variability. So we're trying to use different sizes of, of dart shafts, primarily. If we could do the same with arrows. Our arrow sample is, is much smaller for this, but but the focus was mainly on darts, and we wanted some arrows just for comparison. Yeah. So that's why there's all these different sizes of darts in this graph. I mean, I,
2: I know the answer to this question, but I, I just wanted to, I'll have you answer it for the audience, but like the extreme variability of these graphs and why they're so, not to say why they're so colorful, but what are the importance of these graphs and like why they're complicated and complex because in your experiment, yeah. they need to be.
1: Right. So the point of all the different colors and shapes is to allow the, the reader to pull in a lot of data with one little figure, right. And to try yeah. and figure out what's going on to, to see the differences. So as you're looking at this graph, you see kinetic energy and, and you can actually see that the projectiles are grouping pretty well in how much kinetic energy they're carrying. As the darts mm-hmm. get bigger, they carry a lot more kinetic energy. That's not surprising at all because we know from past work that as projectiles, thrown projectiles, get heavier, they become more efficient for people to throw up to a point of diminishing returns. Where you hit that point of diminishing returns depends on the skill and strength of the thrower. But, right. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, they're going to carry more energy as they get bigger. And that's true for single throwers as well as for large groups of throwers. So for, just for yeah. me, a heavier dart carries more energy than a really light one. And what this is showing is that as that kinetic energy goes up, they're penetrating better. Big surprise, but but kinetic energy is the number one variable capturing the penetration and the size of the wound, the wound surface area in our data Mm-hmm. So, so if you're going to hunt a big animal, you're probably, and you do that for a living, you're probably going to adapt a heavier weapon kit.
2: Sure. The, uh, figure six as well. Like, I just want to commend you on the, like the adding the, like the spearheads or the atlatl points, like with the graft is really, really helpful. And this is like a beautiful figure. And not to mention, like, Thanks. you're showing all your work on the side. And,
0: yeah, it's... I love how the bottom one is covered in bison crap. Like, I remember that point, because even though it was a gut shot, I looked at that I was like, oh, that's the poopy point. And you got that <laughs> you poopy. You <did> <laughs> This is, <laughs>
1: is Carlton's handiwork here. <laughs> yeah, you had two shots right in a row, Carlton. So, actually, these shots were three apart. 290, shot number 290, and shot number 293. They, they hit really close together. They certainly didn't hit the same wound channel, but they, they hit pretty close together and there are two different points, but they're on the same dart. So that was a really good comparison. So, yeah. yeah
0: well, I'm glad I can help, but one of the more like early on table one, right, where you're looking at the bow hunting requirements that that's a very big part. And we talked about that with the Metton and all, um, Aaron at all, sorry. Paper where they're just like, well, you can't hunt elephants with these Clovis points because they're firing them off like a 30-pound bow and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we talked about that in that episode. But you have, like, the list of, like, these are the requirements, the kinetic energy and the uh, force and jewels that you need to be able to hunt these different classifications of game. And you have the very large game, which is between 227 and 998 kilograms. Now, um, does a Mammoth or Mastodon fit within... I don't know what a kilogram is. I speak Merck, and I do my weights in <laughs> orders of Big Macs, so I don't know what a kilogram is. <laughs> let's
1: see. Yeah, I know. Uh, let's do a conversion real quick. So I know that Fred Bear killed a African ele- a four-ton African elephant. At least that was the estimate with a seventy-five-pound bow, so not a terribly heavy draw bow, but he killed it in one shot, and so eighteen hundred kilograms. Yeah, so interesting. That's outside of the the kilogram range, but these I can tell you that these ballistics, these recommendation recommendations, apply to elephants. Yeah. So I'd have to go back and look at Tomka's article as to why he drew the the upper range at 98, 998 kilograms. But in African countries, these ballistics associated with this very large game category are what they recommend for elephant hunting with a bow and gotcha. arrow.
0: Because you have in that you do have two heavy darts, composite number thirteen, composite number sixteen. Composite number thirteen is only able to do eighty-three joules of energy, which is below that recommended eighty-eight threshold. Mm-hmm. But the
1: yeah, but I stuck it in that that heavy darts category. Just yeah, it seemed like but, it belonged
0: there. But then composite sixteen is at one hundred and twelve, which like very well exceeds that limit. Right, and yeah. that's the one. Um, it's like what me and Donnie got similar values on the heavy dart. I remember that thing. That thing sucked to throw.
1: Well, the one you you threw at Donnie's house, you said you enjoyed.
0: It sucked to throw. Oh. It was fun to throw, but it was weird.
1: <laughs> okay, well, th- there's the one you threw up on the mountain, and then there's the one you threw at his house. So. The one you threw at his house, you told me at the time that, that uh, you liked it. That's not correct?
0: I think I'm thinking about the mountain one. One of those wasn't a fun day to throw that thing.
1: That was the mountain one, yeah. It wasn't, as, it wasn't tuned as well, so I improved it, and that's the one you threw at Donnie's house. So 112 joules of energy is absolutely the, the mean that you are getting downrange about 15 yards downrange at at donnie's house and then we were getting some higher values above that 120 130 joules but your mean your average was was above the the necessary recommended energy for an arrow to kill an elephant and the arrow that fred Barry used to kill that 410 elephant had to have been down in like the 60 or 70 joule range or, or lower even so uh, yeah. these are just recommendations
2: gotcha I remember trying to on the mountaintop trying to shoot the target while also keeping it in range of the sheet you had on the side so you could track it with the slow-mo camera but I kept like throwing them <laughs> throwing them over <laughs> that <laughs> still John, hitting it sometimes. <laughs> you were just
1: lobbing over the, the
2: backdrop which <laughs> made it hard to uh, get any kind of good readings <laughs> bad, I wish but... I had the radar gun
1: I mean because later we got a really sweet radar gun for our second bison we crowdsourced it and one of the things I wanted to get with the crowdsourcing was a radar gun so we could compare the velocity from a really high quality radar gun with the high speed camera so we were able to do that and, uh, subsequent velocity experiments we used the radar gun and it was it's phenomenal it, it works
2: so yeah. well yeah. Oh, that's good, dude. Well, uh, we need to wrap this segment up, but when we come back, uh, we'll talk about the other paper. And we're back. So,
0: real quick, that uh, paper included an experiment that none of us were a part of. So, the, for, so since you arrived at Boulder, I think I took part in your experiments, and David and Connor and others were able to to join in in one of them. And so that when you're able to crowdsource that other bison did you do anything different prior to the other experiments for the second
1: bison? Um, the idea on the second bison was to test. First we wanted a a more robust younger animal because you helped out with the the first bison, which was a cow. And we wanted to test a young bull. We also wanted to focus on heavier dart shafts. So I did a lot of prep work up to that experiment crafting these dart shafts. And then uh, for the third bison, the, the one that we just did, we pretty much continued that protocol with some some improvements. So what was different about the second one? We actually had a really small crew. So we had to kind of try and optimize our, our output with a small crew. So we used two of the, the kind of older Casio cameras. One was observing from behind, observing the impacts, the exact location of the impacts. The other one was observing from the side. And then in the third bison, we used a really powerful camera called a Kronos 1.4 to observe from the side, and that's capturing the dart coming in and impacting the bison. And the results there are just astounding because uh, you can use use this auto tracker function and tracker, follow a specific mark on the dart shaft, and it just goes automatically. And then you you get this force feedback as the, mm-hmm. the dart penetrates, and you get some really sweet data, so so it was definitely uh, really useful to see how those heavier darts were performing, but also to test more robust, younger bison, and and just to try out those different cameras.
2: Yeah, no, your equipment's always been pretty pretty sweet for all this. Absolutely. Now I'm like curious, like what's the next step with the data,
0: right? Because we see, you know, generally we're talking about the heavier darts are we believe are used first, right? Because that's what people are hunting Pleistocene megafauna with. And as time progresses, then we get lighter darts. Then there's a transition. There's a time where darts, like basket maker darts, and arrows are being used together. And then especially in like the United States, uh, indigenous nations within the United States begin just using bow and arrow technology. So what is that transition tracking? Or is there something going on in the environment or the type of game that's being hunted that's Kind of shifting this practice.
1: Yeah, I mean, so you're bringing up all the questions that we have because we don't know what people were using. I mean, we can see what abacils and darts looked like in the, the late archaic that are coming out of the southwest. We don't know what paleo Indian atletals and darts looked like. always we are the points, mm-hmm. and we have a problem, like we mentioned earlier, where archaeologists. Not always, but they tend to be essentializing these weapons. So they're just saying, "Oh, this is now little dart point, and now little dart is X, y, z, and that's what it looks like, and that's that. But we suspect if people are hunting really big animals in the Pleistocene, they're probably using a heavier kit. And then later in time, these lightweight basket maker darts that we're seeing in the southwest, these are adapted to hunting a sweeter prey, smaller prey, probably. And they're, they're hunting you know, desert bighorns and that sort of thing. So those are the kinds of questions that we have. And how do we see all of that just from stone points alone? When you pick up a stone point, you don't know how it was used. You don't know what the dart it was on looked like. But if you can make replica stone points and use them and see how they perform and see how they become damaged and see how bone becomes damaged at, with these different ballistic profiles that gives you something to work with that you can then bring that to the archaeological record and and try and and draw your data set out a little bit more and and make some, you know, approximations of what a hunting kit looked like in the past. So that's a big part of what we're trying to do here.
2: Would you ever, given the chance, do a a live bison hunt or would you be opposed to that? You don't have the answer if you don't want.
1: I mean, I would hunt a bison within that little but, um, I think ethically it's just, uh, it's something you have to tiptoe around. You know, I might right. do it for, for my own hunt. Now, having seen how these points perform, I definitely, one of the good reasons to do this kind of experiment is it gives you a sense of how efficacious a hunting weapon is, and then you can bring that data to try and determine, you know, is this still something we want to do or not? Uh, yeah. You know, you want to do that first on a. An animal that, that has just recently died a very rapid death and and you know i would also point out that these experiments we're going ahead and we're consuming these animals so so nothing is really lost that that wouldn't have been mm. yeah I, i'm skeptical or I, I would be really careful really cautious
2: yeah
0: definitely tasted I, the edge on that first and holy shit was, that, <laughs> was she rugged
2: <laughs> i i met a guy so, that's spring that had done a bison hunt, I believe with the Hunt Primitive guy. Oh, that's right. Hunt Primitive. He had said like he wouldn't do it again because he just felt so like, I don't think gross was the word, but that was kind of like what he was getting at that, you know, it's in a confined area. It's not like a real hunt. And they they got a great shot and it died like pretty quickly, but he was like, it's just not, not worth it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Farmed animal is, it's not really hunting. Mm-mm. And uh, unfortunately, we haven't recovered bison yet to the extent that uh, you can go find easily find a, a big wild population that you can legitimately hunt. Right. So, yeah, we need we have a lot of work ahead of us to, to recover those animals on the landscape.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Man, dude, you just do such cool shit. I'm so fucking happy that you got this new job. Like, <laughs> this is just it's just really awesome to see all this turn out in this published form. And I don't know, like, I think, like, you're, you're part of a trend of this generation of archaeologists in their fields and their, their foci really going after a lot of this assumed knowledge and, like, showing, like, you know, this is the work that's been done for the past 40, 50 years is, is not necessarily accurate because we just assumed the nature of the record and what these tools were used for. Like my colleague here at IU, he's a zooarchaeologist. And he's like quickly realizing a lot of times specimens that are in a box aren't actually what's labeled on the box. And like he was trying to get comparative samples from like Harvard and they wanted 15 uh, rabbits and like even Harvard sample, like five of the 15 were squirrels. They weren't even rabbits. And it's just like, and those are comparative samples that the world uses to identify remains in the archaeological record like oh we know you know so it's just like and you're part of this like well how do we actually know what we know and we're in this really interesting transition where we had the post-processual critique in the late in the early 90s that said well, we need to look at things differently but you're part of this generation that's s- still very much rooted in quantitative methodologies to really go back reapply a lot of reanalyze a lot of our understanding of the archaeological record and be like no 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 if we're going to be scientific, we actually have to use the scientific method. And you can't yeah. assume when doing that. And yeah, like it's just in the fact that I don't know, man. Like some of my favorite moments of being a grad student are, are with you in random places on a farm. <laughs> <laughs>
2: like, insane. While, while you guys were in grad school, like just being there for part of this was like, damn, dude, this is to piggyback off what Carlton was saying. Like, when you explain archaeology is a science, like, your papers are at like the gold standard for like you know not just experimental but like legitimate science. Like it's a Mythbusters type oh, thing. Man. Looking at everything, you yeah, yeah it's just it's cool. <laughs> yeah, man. Definitely <laughs> <Rightfully. busting>
0: Mythbusters <laughs> and all their gel you know ballistics gel that they use all the time. It's like, well, yeah, it. yeah. Yeah, you can use that. I mean, you
1: can use it for firearms, okay? Uh, and I should I should just clarify really quickly why that is because. If you think about leather if you think if you imagine you have three strips of of material you have a strip of leather that's kind of thick and then you have a strip the same size of ballistics gelatin and you have a strip of clay if you pick up those strips in your fingertips and pull them apart you can imagine that the gel uh, just like jello would come apart really easily in your hands the clay would too but the leather you would probably you would probably have a hernia right before you pulled it apart uh, so, so the ballistic Gelatin, and it's been tested for quite a long time for firearms, it's mimicking the density and viscosity of muscle tissue. It's not mimicking the fracture toughness. But for a bullet, because it's traveling at such high velocity and it doesn't defeat a target using a sharp tip and edge, the fracture toughness isn't the main part. You can, you can model bullet penetration use a flu- using a fluid model as if it's traveling through a fluid medium like uh, atmosphere or or water. And so one of the two main variables in a fluid penetration model are density and viscosity. But we are studying low velocity projectiles that defeat targets using sharp tips and edges. And so they're defeating tough targets like skin is a very tough target. Uh, leather body armor is a very tough target. They're defeating that Using those sharp tips and edges, so so that's why ballistic gelatin just it's not working, and the same is true of clay.
0: Yeah, because there was one moment that you were speaking about how in the high speed you could see that the some the ballistic gel was like bending before it broke, like it was absorbing. Yeah, like arrowheads in particular before it even penetrated, and then it kind of there's the uh, an elasticity to it where it kind of gets stuck back, in. like it wasn't even act like and just like you said right it's, it's not doing what it's supposed to do with the tension so it's like fucking with right. the penetration depths because it's acting like flubber yeah
1: yeah i mean it's just like it doesn't have any of the structure you know to make it you if you want to make uh collagen based gel you're you're rendering collagen out of these uh tissues uh, tendon bone skin you're you're rendering that out in a hot wasp water acid bath, and you're mixing that subsequent that collagen gel with water. None of the structure, like the collagen fibers in skin, none of that is preserved. So the toughness just isn't there. It's capturing friction. So if you use a smaller point, it can even be a dull field point. If it's smaller than a sharp, larger sharp broadhead, it's going to tend to penetrate deeper. Whereas you're going to get entirely the opposite result. And a, an animal carcass.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you? Th- how how deep do you think a heavy artillery dart would penetrate a Russian conscript wearing Nerf body? <laughs> <armor>? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think we, gotta tell we, we could take a plane trip and go test this quasi legally.
1: <laughs> no, uh, so body armor that protects on a battlefield against a ballistic attack isn't necessarily designed for uh, for something like a knife. That's why. Now the the body armor that's being manufactured for like police forces, uh, they, they're trying to have to try and balance body armor that's going to capture both a, a knife thrusting attack and a bullet. Hmm. So if you didn't have that kind of body armor and you had a sharp broadhead on the end of a dart, it might go right through and, and you know right through the body armor into the into the body. So yeah, I don't know how I can't tell you how deep, but I suspect it would defeat the outer layer of body armor and go through the torso and probably stop at the back, the, the back layer of body armor.
2: An atlatel at with the stone talking.
1: point? I'm not sure about a stone point, a, a sharp broadhead, but, uh, okay. but the result we tend to get on the bison is that when they get through the skin and uh, resistance is far less through the torso, they're going all the way through and they're actually stopping and get skin at the back of the torso or in some cases, they're penetrating through the skin on the back of the tor- torso, but, but usually um, they they have shed the, the large amount of energy they need to, to punch through that tough hide on a bison uh, yeah. is shed by the time they get to the back of the torso. Yeah. So,
2: so yeah. I must have missed it then, but like how, how is it that it c- a body armor could stop a bullet but couldn't stop like a broadhead from going through it? Is it just surface area or like? Is, it, just, the,
1: it's the, the fibers of the body armor because uh kevlar body armor you know it's a fabric it's it's stopping kind of a blunt but very high velocity projectile if you take sharp edges uh, they're able to cut through the fibers so to make a uh, body armor that, that protects against both they're using this this armor that becomes hard and hardened at higher velocities or at a certain high velocity you, you know you want the body to the, the armor to move with your body especially if you're having to wear it all day as a police police officer you're getting hot and sweaty you need to move around you don't want it to be to to be a stiff hard material but that's what you need to shield against a, a sharp object you see you want a hard <laughs> it's going to dull the edge
0: so it's like why a trampoline can bounce a bowling ball, but
2: gets cut by a knife. That makes plenty of sense, then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So just hire a bunch of Scythian mercenaries to go to Kharkiv or Kiev. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: If you
2: had access to oh <laughs> the
1: a no, Star Wars. <laughs>
2: I mean, yeah, yeah a lightsaber would work too. But right. <laughs> what's your favorite result? Or what's your favorite thing you've learned? Favorite thing from these papers?
1: The force data that's coming out of the the high velocity or the the high speed video impacts, that's really fascinating. We're seeing uh, peaks in force at different moments in time. So, so the the main peak generally occurs when the point is penetrating the skin because, again, it's the most resistant soft tissue. If you have like a, a lot of wool, a thick wool coat, it becomes even more resistant. So, we're seeing these high peaks in force, but oftentimes those peaks are occurring when the hafting area of the projectile is penetrated. Mm-hmm. Especially on the third bison that we tested, it still had its winter coat, it had this very thick wool coat that was full of sediment. And a lot of the points were actually getting hung up the hafting area, and there were, like wool was getting lodged in there. Or if you just have a, a hafting area that's kind of bulky, going through, that's generally where the peak force occurs. And what that Mm. means is that unsurprisingly, a bulkier haft, or a haft that isn't very smooth, where that the point is hafted to the foreshaft, that tends to be a big inhibitor of penetration depth. So we don't see the halves in the archaeological record, but we do see the basis of the points that correspond to um, how they were hafted. And so we should be thinking about how to most efficiently haft points, when really efficient hafting would be called on. Namely, if you're hunting really big prey and how that's going to be, that information is going to be passed down to us generally through stone points alone.
2: Oh, that's cool, man. I mean, I've known you for what, five years? No, it's 2020. So yeah, you've been at this a minute. When
0: when did we record Donnie? That was 2019. No, that was 2020.
2: That was was right before COVID. I remember like people were in mass at the airport on the way back and I thought I had it. Uh, but not you meet Devin at, he was there for um, the hell. Gap. Yeah. You were at Albuquerque. That's where I met you. That,
0: yeah. That too. But then um, the hell gap oh, yeah. dedication. I wasn't there for that. Oh.
2: Anyway. Yeah. You've been working on this stuff for a while and it clearly you're passionate about it and it just look at, I'm still stuck on this figure with the, points are figure six yeah you're clearly passionate about it so looks great you're starting a new job soon but where can people find you
1: uh, I still post occasionally on Instagram athlete and uh, we have the website I want to start putting some time into that website ask dot com. the website that uh Justin and I run so I think we should uh, start updating that a bit more but
2: on social media look for me on instagram okay it's a r dot or a r underscore at a r dot at yeah
0: okay all that will be in the episode description dude devin as always thank you so much thank you for continuously agreeing to be on the podcast um really excited to see you at a university you absolutely um, deserve a tenure track yeah. position I think you're only like twelve hours away by car ride <laughs> still yes <laughs> yeah.
1: i know i'm the same distance from my home in arkansas to to so ross as i was from to colorado so there's that yeah, yeah.
2: life of an archaeologist what? in west texas would yeah. be fun
0: i'd visit you there
1: it's a cool environment yeah, yeah you got the big the Bend national park is
0: right there yeah oh, absolutely cool. All right, everyone, we just interviewed Dr. Devin Pettigrew. You can find him on Instagram at ar.adlatl, as well as um, his website, Basketmaker something.
1: Basketmakeradlatl.com.
0: I don't know why I, I, th- I thought that was it. Basketmakeradlatl.com. I thought you froze. Like, I thought your video literally My froze. brain, My brain did. I blue screened <laughs> in, in the brain. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
2: Uh, well, yeah, this has been great. Appreciate you coming on, and guys, rate and review the podcast. Do whatever you want. The All Shows Feed thing. S- subscribe on our, our thing, and Whatever. Anyway. All right. See you guys later. Bye. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer.